1: The Russell Moore Show. I am Ashley Hales, and I get the privilege and pleasure of producing The Russell Moore Show. And we wanted to bring you kind of somewhat regularly a quarterly books episode. So if you have not yet listened, back in December, we published the best books of 2022. It's been a super popular episode because everyone has lots of good questions about what Russell Moore is reading. So we wanted to bring that throughout the year to you. And we hope that this conversation will will be profitable for you to help pick up a new book maybe, or at least learn and think about how we might read more widely. So thanks for joining us. It's great to talk about books with you today, Russell.
0: Yeah, I'm looking forward to it. Although I I have such uh, brain fog after uh, being uh, on the West Coast and then coming home, getting sick Aww. and uh, losing uh, several days. So I may not even really know my name today, much That's less okay. anything. So let's just uh, <laughs> bear with me.
1: I understand. I'm traveling to the East Coast next week. So yeah, the jet lag is a real, real thing. So when we read a book that has maybe a wildly different worldview, we can begin to practice the sort of careful listening. So how I would love to, before we get into some specific books, how has that idea of careful listening or reading widely affected how you've chosen what to read, Russell?
0: Well, it's not a strategy where I say I want to read uh, books from all of these different uh, perspectives for mm-hmm. the purpose of fill in the blank. It's right. um, I read I read books that are about things that I'm interested in, uh, or uh, where the the writing is compelling. Yeah, and, um, and and often at that point, I mean, sometimes uh, what a book will do is to uh, change my mind on something,
1: yeah.
0: Because mm-hmm. I may realize, oh, I would never even thought about that. Right. It's it never even crossed my mind that this might be uh, an issue. Um, or sometimes it can it can just be that I better understand where someone else is coming from. Right. And and sometimes it can be a situation where you just say, oh, that's really a model of how to do it poorly. It's the equivalent of talking to somebody. You, you don't. In any conversation, you're not saying to yourself, I'm coming in this expecting total um, agreement nor are you going into it saying I'm expecting total opposition. Right. You're you're instead evaluating, uh, as the scripture says, testing uh, everything, not in a not in a skeptical way, but just in a, mm-hmm. a, a what what is this way? Right. Um, and holding fast to what is good. Yeah. And sometimes in reading, just like in conversation, sometimes holding fast to what is good is to say, Oh, I've not been considering something that's good. Let me grab it here, Uh, sometimes it is, oh, I now see more clearly Mm -hmm. why the opposite of this or something adjacent to this is good or better.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's such a helpful way of thinking about it because, you know, often we either go in with too sharp a scalpel, right, to the things that we're reading to tear it apart, or we go into it not realizing that we are being kind of brought into a whole nother way of seeing and into a new world, So yeah, I think that's, that's helpful to, there is a process of discernment that is a thoughtful interaction with a text in the same way that there is with people. So the first book that you wanted to share with us today is called Looking for the Hidden Folk, How Iceland's Elves Can Save the Earth by Nancy Marie Brown. You know, there's a sense in which Iceland kind of holds this mythological place, um, in our, in our imaginations. So mm-hmm. why did you pick up a book about elves <laughs> and help us learn about, about, yeah, the interest for this book? Why, how can Iceland's elves save the
0: earth? Uh, well, part of it is uh, is that uh, question. And when you say Iceland holds a mythological uh, place, mm-hmm. uh, that actually works in two ways. Because mythological in the sense that Um, most people aren't familiar with Iceland Mm -hmm. firsthand. And so there are all sorts of, if they think about it, there are all sorts of conceptions that come to mind. But also because a a great deal of uh, mythology has come out of Iceland. And you think about and the book even talks about it at one point, uh, Tolkien and the the way that the Lord of the Rings is uh, emanating out of in many places uh, Icelandic uh, mythology. Mm-hmm. And of course he's, mm-hmm. he's drawing from all, all sorts of mythological sources, but that's one of them. But I think the the main thing is, uh, first of all, seeing the words elf lobby is enough <laughs> to get me uh, interested who yeah. to say, yeah. <laughs> uh, what's this, uh, what's this about? But also because in working in uh secularism Mm -hmm. uh, over the past several secularization, Mm -hmm. one of the things that keeps coming to the uh, forefront is the way that um, there are resurgent forms of supernaturalism trying to fill the void
1: Mm
0: -hmm. uh, Mm -hmm. left. by, With the argument being uh, secularization is not just a, as Charles Taylor would put it, a subtraction, Right. of um, of belief there there is a human longing for something transcendent mm-hmm. and one of the examples of that uh, is the the large relatively large number of people in Iceland who would say they believe in elves yeah. so the the book's not actually about elves she's doing a number of things she's talking about uh, the environment she's talking about e- ecology right. uh, she's talking about uh, secularization mm-hmm. and um, disenchantment yeah uh, she's she's talking about um, nationalism and folk religion I mean there's so many different strands mm-hmm. that come into this mm-hmm. with something that most people probably haven't given a lot of thought to uh, elves
1: yeah <laughs> So it's enough to pique your curiosity, even right, to think about yeah. how do we think about this in terms of Icelandic elves, but but asking broader questions about how we think about reality and how we we tell our stories about yeah. what what is real and what is not real. And there are so many perhaps modern Westerners who will try to compartmentalize things between mm-hmm. the sacred, what we would call sacred and secular divides. Um, and she's kind of com- she's bringing back this idea of magic, right, back into the equation and helping us maybe reevaluate this idea that it's that we we'll live in a purely materialist world.
0: Yeah, and and her argument is not um, Icelandic people are right that elves no, right. exist. <laughs> right, right. Uh, it, it's very clear she doesn't <laughs> really believe that elves do exist. But her point is that it says something about us that all of uh, our our first reaction is, right. well, I mean that's dumb. I mean we're we're, we're <laughs> right. laughing that we're right. we're laughing that we're interacting with a book about elves. Uh, no one in thirteen twenty three would laugh about the fact that you're interacting with the question of whether or not there were. Uh, there are uh, elves or some other form of spiritual, unseen spiritual being, right? And so, in some ways, she's kind of pointing out uh, the way that the way that we see even the the question of it as mm-hmm. ridiculous is similar mm-hmm. to the way that um, that more and more people see any right. Uh, conversation of something outside of the material as mm-hmm. being uh, ridiculous. And, and mm-hmm. her point, which is right, is that that not only uh, contradicts Christianity and almost every other uh, religion, it's it's contradicting science mm-hmm. increasingly. And, yeah. and, and we're in a disorienting sort of time when it comes to realizing just how strange the universe is.
1: I just flipped through the book and she did talk about you know, there's, there's a sense of what is real and what is, you know, that you could even scientifically prove this idea of a multiverse, for instance, or mathematically talk about, Mm -hmm. but then, but do we believe it? And so she's pulling out some of these terms that I think are really helpful for Christians to think about in terms of this might be quote unquote true, but how are we relating to that knowledge? Um, And to say that there is always an element of belief in how we how we participate in things, I thought was really attractive and interesting.
0: Well, and and, and she also is, um, she's kind of undoing and from a very different starting place than, yeah. than I would be, but she's undoing yeah. a starting place and an ending place, but she's undoing <laughs> the idea that um, the more sophisticated we get, the more the universe uh, seems understandable to us. Mm-hmm. because that's always been the assumption because there are so many ways in which that is true. Mm-hmm. We, uh, we know that there's gravity in a way that, that people uh, in, in, uh, in the long past did not. We understand uh, all, how tidal systems. I mean, we understand a lot, but the more that we understand with this, the more we realize just how quirky uh, and, and unknowable yeah. uh, the universe is.
1: This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. With summer coming up, I'm already dreading not only the traffic on the roads, but also the increased cost of groceries and the fact that my children eat all day long. You know, we all have stressors. Some are big and some are small, like an increased grocery bill. But therapy is a safe place to actually get these stressors off your chest and to figure out how you can actually work through them. There are many benefits to therapy for people from all walks of life. It's helpful to learn positive coping skills so you don't freak out about that grocery bill and how to set boundaries. Therapy can empower you to be the best version of yourself and it isn't just for those who've experienced major trauma. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's convenient, flexible, and entirely online. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash Russell Moore today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp.com slash Russell Moore. What kind of questions has this book prompted for you in terms of kind of leadership or apologetics, or, you know, as you're thinking of our Christian listeners picking up this book, what would you want to uh, to say about looking for the hidden folk?
0: Well, I think one of the uh, examples, and of course, what, what she's, uh, I'll, I'll trace out to first that she's talking about uh, the way that uh, elves uh, functioned in terms of the the public imagination in yeah. years past and why that persists. And there were several things that I think are are important here. I mean, one of them is she gives the example of, just very briefly, but of Philip Pullman, mm-hmm. who, um, you know, is, is somebody I find hard to be sympathetic with mm-hmm. and um, I, I, because... It's not because he's an atheist and he's disagrees with me and all of that. It's because he's writing fiction, the, his dark materials uh, fiction, that in almost every interview I've ever seen is attacking C.S. Lewis right. as being uh, naive and evil and, and so forth. So it's kind of an anti-Narnia. Okay. So that means... <laughs> Without my even thinking about it, he actually is kind of a villain right. <laughs> uh, in my in my mind. Uh, but she talks about him walking down uh, the street, a Charing Cross in in uh, London, and having this um, ecstatic sort of experience. That when the way she describes it, it sounds like Thomas Merton in downtown Louisville, Kentucky, mm-hmm. when he he had this moment where he looks around and just suddenly uh, sees a people as yeah. unique mm-hmm. and luminous and all those sorts of things. Mm-hmm. So it's like that, he had this just moment and uh, the way he categorizes it is that it's the the universe is sentient and mm-hmm. the the everything is connected and that shows up in his novels where essentially dust um, uh, is, is, a, is alive in, yeah. in some sense. And so what, when I read that, I just thought, you know, Philip Pullman in, has been uh, lashing out at Lewis for all of these years. <laughs> and he's telling us exactly what Lewis <laughs> says happens, mm-hmm. which is that sense of longing and that sense yeah. of hungering that we try to replace with various things. Sometimes that kind of an experience, sometimes with uh, drugs. Mm-hmm. Some, I mean, there's just so many different ways that, that that attempts to get filled. And Lewis's point was the hungering for it, yep. uh, just as hungering for food points you to the fact that there actually is food, is food even yeah. if you don't yeah. have any. Uh, that, that longing is pointing you for uh, what, what is meant to fulfill that longing mm-hmm. And so I was able to have some sympathy with uh, with uh, Philip Pullman for a while and I really realized as much as I have spoken and written mm-hmm. uh, over the years about don't uh, y- your mission field these are not your enemies uh, don't don't uh, caricature people's views that people aren't super villains uh, I I kind of had that. Category without even thinking about it, just because I don't think about Philip Pullman very much. Yeah. And I realized, ah, that is how I was thinking about him. Uh, but there's a there's a a broken place here. Mm. There's there's a, mm. a long here to remind me Jesus died for Philip Pullman and yeah. and Philip Pullman is created in the image of God. That was helpful. Mm-hmm. Also, uh, it's helpful when she when she talks about stories mm-hmm. because she's using the example of studies uh, about eyesight and about uh, uh, about seeing things, mm-hmm. and she talks about cultural differences that are there that really do matter in terms of thinking because uh, what. Eyesight says, she says, is not what is this, but what is this like? Mm. And that's the way that we tend to think about everything. Nothing's coming in out of the blue. We're we're comparing it to something that we already know. So she shows the difference between people who would see time as linear Mm -hmm. and people who would see time as circular and Mm -hmm. rhythmic. Uh, mm-hmm. So uh, that um, that that kind of question and and says the issue is what are the metaphors and analogies that people mm-hmm. are making when they think about things, which of course is exactly the perspective that the Bible gives of uh, of knowledge and of uh, and of mm-hmm. revelation. If you don't. If you don't have the analogies right, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. then you're not going to see. You, you, you right. end up thinking to yourself, um, as the as the Pharisees do, um, we can see, and this man is blind. And Jesus' response is in in one very um, in one sense that's true, and in another sense, you're the blind ones because you think you see. Right. Uh, so I think it, it stumbles into that power of uh, of 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 story mm-hmm. um, that actually changes the way that you think, which is what I'm. It's what I'm convinced mm-hmm. of when it comes to the the Bible. And you think go back to to Tolkien mm-hmm. uh, and uh, and Lewis, uh, myth become fact. Right uh, m- myths and stories, what we think of as as myths, uh, are often uh, parodying or uh, uh, attempting to pick up on the themes of something that that I believe to be really true, mm-hmm. uh, which is the the biblical story, and the way the biblical story changes us is not just the way that we uh, can say okay. I've memorized numbers right. 12 and that means that I know how to apply the theology that comes from numbers 12. I know how to apply the practical life benefits. I know how to I know how to pray through numbers 12. All those true. Mm-hmm. But it's also that numbers 12 is shaping and changing that what is this like question? Yeah. So what you're starting to to do, as you're in uh, the Bible and you're interacting with God through the Bible is you're starting to ask different sets of questions Mm -hmm. about what's out there and what's not and what's in here uh, Mm -hmm. in in yourself and what's not. And you start to, I I think that's what, uh, you think about what Jesus is doing in the wilderness temptations. Mm -hmm. This, uh, I know what this is. Right. This is the. It is written. He knows. He knows. He knows this storyline because it is his storyline and it is true. Mm-hmm. And so she spends a lot of time kind of talking about uh, the power of stories, and then about why uh, these these elf myths are are so persistent. Mm-hmm. And it, that's one thing that that struck me is because. She says, people hold on to that because they want to hold on to something distinctively Icelandic. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this is a way of saying, we're not like everybody else. Uh, but it's also a way of kind of protesting against what she's arguing that Christianity has done, hmm. which Christianity comes in and uh, and flattens, she says, the, the, yeah. the universe and takes the... Um, takes that sense of um, of the universe as mystery and turns it into a set of things and uh, takes rhythmic time and flattens it out into linear time and all of that. And as I'm, I'm reading this, uh, I'm saying, uh, that's not what Christianity does. It, it is what it is what one form of right. uh, cultural secularizing, uh, Christianity does, but that's not what the actual Christian gospel does. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so it, it kind of it, it kind of reminded me of that's actually where I mean I, I was talking to um, a, a friend of mine, and I, both of us Christians, were talking to an atheist uh, friend, and he just says, "I just I can't understand. It's like." you all see in color and i see in black and white and you're trying to explain to me what blue is huh. you know i just i just can't i can't see this and what we uh, spent time on is not you, you say there's you say there's no god we say there is and here's here are the the proofs and the evidences for it what we would do is to say you really don't believe that everything is matter, mm-hmm. which he is what he said. Mm-hmm. Everything is matter. Mm-hmm. You really don't believe that because you love Beethoven mm-hmm. and poetry, and you you love you experience love of people that is more to you than just the firing of neurons. Right. Right. Uh, you, you hold people accountable for things um you you don't simply see it as a fiery you really do think there's something transcendent we want to talk about what yeah. that is and so yeah. she's she's kind of showing that in this one context
1: mm-hmm.
0: in an act 17 I mean she's yeah. not doing it from you know right. Paul's doing it from a Christian perspective she's not doing that but she's she's kind of showing the one of the altars to the unknown God right and explaining what it is what Paul does when he comes into Athens is to say, "You keep, you keep saying to me that you know everything that there is to know, but you really don't, because you've told me you don't. Right? With that altar to a god you don't know. So let me, let's talk about it. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. that was that was an important part of it
1: to me. No, that is important, and it's important to see other people doing it from different perspectives than our own, because um, even our own metaphors or the ways that we talk about these sorts of things can get a little tiresome sometimes, right? So it is helpful yeah. to to read widely and to refresh some of that perspective. Um, I'd love to widen the frame a little bit and talk about both Looking for the Hidden Folk and the next book that we'll chat about in just a second about the baby boom and the future of power in America called The Aftermath. Um, both of them really are wide ranging books. You know, they're, they're taking things from um social sciences, they're taking things from poetry, um, culture and it struck me you know on on the one hand, I love those sorts of books. Um, I'm reading, Robert McFarland's book called The Old Ways, and it's a journey on foot. And he's taking, Mm -hmm. you know, geopolitical surveys about land. And he's also talking about, you know, what does this poet have to say? And Mm -hmm. such these wide ranging, you know, surveys of, of particular themes or ideas. And it strikes me as having also read a bunch of current contemporary Christian writing, do you think, you know, are there Christian writers today who are writing those sorts of wide-ranging, maybe genre-bending sorts of work? Oh yeah. Or why or why not? Yeah. What who would you recommend on that list as far as
0: well, I mean, think of um, I mean, he's not he's not alive, but he's only recently not alive. E- Eugene Peterson right? does
1: this. Yep, yep. yep. Uh
0: and, and so that that sort of and I think there are a lot of people who who do, um, and I almost, I kind of am reluctant to give examples because I would be naming people I know, and there would be other people that I might not right, think about right, right now, right. Yes. <laughs> but but there are people who, who do that. Um, the, the issue is that a lot of times people don't believe that they can yeah, uh, yeah. do that. Right. and so it's in order to in order to write from a christian perspective um, the way the, the way i have to do that is to say all of this is bad these things are let me tell you the things that are bad
1: right
0: and and uh, or to focus in just on the particular area that i know and want to know yeah when in reality uh, even even on things that you do already know um you're maybe you're a sunday school teacher or a small group leader and and you would say i'm really familiar with the source material in the bible i'm really familiar with all of those things yes but the the way that we uh learn and uh and change is by coming to those moments of bafflement yeah, yeah. And we say wait a minute I've never I've never thought about that uh, before mm-hmm. and and that happens in in multiple different ways I mean uh, Lewis talked about going around those watchful dragons yeah the way that we protect ourselves and so you do that that's through uh, uh, stories uh, it's also through just areas of um, Areas of insight that you just you you don't know about, and you are learning. So I think in any in any area, we always uh, have learning to do. Mm-hmm. But we always we often become so familiar with something that we forget how to learn in it. Yeah, and yeah, so yeah. you have to be in some places where you're a novice. Yeah, that's good. Uh, in order to sort of activate those. Yes. Uh, <laughs> those muscles to do that. Yes, yes,
1: that's like yeah. So pick up a book about something you know nothing about, and we can all be learners. I love it.
0: Or pick up a book you do know something about, but with somebody who is going to be uh, putting things together mm-hmm. in in ways that uh, that that you haven't considered uh, before, mm-hmm. and and that's that's what ideas are and insights are, is to say. Here, here's this and it's like that and it's not like that. And here's how these ideas hold together or how they come into conflict with each other. And that's actually how you think. Yep. You know? yep. And, and it, 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 often what you'll find is the stuff that you're reading or talking about, it coheres uh, later in ways you do not think about yep. at the time. So for instance... Uh, I read this hidden wolf, hidden wolves, hidden <laughs> hidden people, hidden folk uh, book quite a while ago. Mm-hmm. and so when I knew we were going to talk about it, I said, Let me pull it off and look at my highlights. Uh, in the middle of that, I'm working on a Bible study for this Sunday mm-hmm. on mm-hmm. Uh, Jacob and Leah, mm-hmm. uh, Jacob and Leah and Rachel. and th- there are there are elements of the hidden. Some of the ideas I interacted with in the Hidden Folk book yeah, that yeah. are showing up in that right, Bible yeah. study. I mean, that's just right. how thinking right. happens. And right. so, find people, even if it's something that you're that you know about, you're comfortable in, but they're going to be able to also bring in things that you don't already.
1: Know. Mm-hmm. Book clubs, yeah, reading and community, important. Those are important ways to to learn and to grow.
0: What I loved most of all about Israel and why I became a Zionist was because Zionism was a rejection of victimhood.
1: A few weeks ago on CT's The Bulletin, we launched Promised Land, a new podcast about Israel and Palestine in a post October seventh world.
0: Six thirty a.m. We're, we're in, in in our synagogue praying, and sirens go off, and they're and they're going on. Everybody Everybody
1: based on interviews and conversations captured on the ground in Israel last November. It's an exploration of the spiritual, political, and historical roots of the conflict. When there's a weak Israel, every Jew in the world is weak. And why should uh, a Russian Jew who has nothing to do with this land come come here? Why? I mean, if you want, you can give them Texas. You love them so much.
0: I am alive because I wasn't, I, I didn't come home But all my friends that were here were murdered, here, here, over there. This week,
1: Promised Land moves to its own feed. You'll find links in the show notes. So if you haven't heard it yet, you can go catch up and catch the new episodes as they come all in one place. Well, the next book that um, you have been thinking about is called The Aftermath. The Last Days of the Baby Boom and the Future of Power in America by Philip Bump, um, which I am really excited to dig into. I was just able to have a brief look at it. But, you know, he's a columnist for the Washington Post and um, really, really thoughtful guy, of course, about what does what does our current moment in time and generational identities and how does that actually affect where we might be going forward as a nation Um really highly researched book talking about race and age and wealth and institutions and how power might be reconfigured. My husband just recently did a sermon series on generations on mission together. And I was like, too bad we didn't have this book. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But nevertheless, it's still of interest. And, uh, you know, I think there is a sense in which we, the generational identity is relatively new, um, you know, in in world history as far as this is what kind of, um, encapsulates um, a group of people. What about this book um, made you hopeful about the future of America? And what maybe made you a little bit trepidatious?
0: I think what's important uh, about this book is that he is, at least in, in many places in the book, differentiating between, and he he cites Robert Putnam as making this difference. Mm-hmm. And it's the difference between generation Generation and life cycle mm-hmm. and so they're often what we think are generational uh, differences are not generational differences, they're just life cycle differences. yeah, and so he gives the uh, example, and I think it's I think it's a, it, I made, it made me laugh, because uh, I'm a Gen Xer and had a I remember having a T-shirt. You know, sometime in the late 1990s, it was a Pepsi T-shirt that they gave yeah. out somewhere. Generation Next.
1: Uh huh.
0: Well, he went through and and showed all of the Pepsi uh, advertising uh, t- toward the bo- the baby boomers, the Pepsi uh-huh. generation, then Gen Xers, then millennials, and it's all a very similar sort of uh, thing. And it's not it's not that Pepsi is saying. Oh, millennials are a completely different uh, generation that we want to reach. They're saying young people,
1: right? And that this is how, yeah, yeah, this is how we get to twenty-year-olds to drink Pepsi. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: And I think sometimes there are, you know, with a lot of the sort of uh, okay, boomer uh, or uh, Gen uh, Gen Zers and and millennials are are lazy and entitled or or whatever really aren't generational differences. Right. They're the difference between being 20 and being 40 and being 60. I mean, those are yeah. different places in the life cycle. So he he shows that, but he also shows that there are uh, generational differences in, I mean, you mentioned the fact that in previous eras, you, you wouldn't have had that kind of generational thinking. Right. And that's true, largely because you didn't have the ability to, uh, shape large numbers of people mm-hmm. with mm-hmm. Y- y- people mm-hmm. were much more locally uh, influenced. But when you have, for instance, with the baby boom, a group of people who just happen to be born into a moment yep. in American life of uh, prosperity, relative uh, prosperity, uh, what seemed to be stability. There's a lot of them. Because it's coming out of both World War II and and after the Depression. So you have a, a lot of them. And so it's like with everything else. We experience, we think of our own experiences as, well, this is what life is when a lot of times it's just this is what happened to you. Mm-hmm. So he went through and 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 showed uh, and showed that and then showed how some of those uh tensions that are showing up are contributing to the challenges that we're we're facing right now. Mm-hmm. I mean I think what made me hopeful about America as I read this is every era is a lot more the same than we think it is. And every Mm -hmm. era is a lot different from what we expect that it will be. Mm -hmm. So if if you had gone back in time to 1969 and said to somebody, what will the baby boomers be like in the year 2023? uh, Somebody might likely have said to you, oh, it's, counterculture hippie <laughs> right yeah those you know, and would would really not be able to imagine the yep. karen meme or right. <laughs> uh the the golf cart uh, parades in the villages or all those sorts of things. well yeah. why because th- there's there are these changes that happen and emphases that happen and so just being reminded of that
1: mm-hmm. maybe it's not quite as dire as uh, as we might imagine
0: yeah i mean it's maybe. it's <laughs> it's it's one of those things where it's it's not i think we've got a tendency to think this generation is terrible and this generation is great <laughs> when in reality generations are made up of people mm-hmm. and so every generation is sinful and fallen to the core Yeah, and <laughs> every generation <laughs> is uh, created in the image of God and and, and reflecting something mm-hmm. and is, every generation is filled with common grace mm-hmm. and special grace, but common yep. grace too. So, you know, <laughs> yeah. you, you, it's important to pay attention to, okay, what are some specific things to this generation that we ought to... Uh, we ought to pay attention to in terms of the way that we talk to them Mm -hmm. or the way that Mm -hmm. we see what's happening. But it's not in terms of saying, um, these are the bad people and these are the good people.
1: (laughs) Right, right. Um, What do you make though, I think of, you know, a question that's come up in a lot of interviews recently of yours is, you know, how do we think about passing the baton of leadership? And baby boomers have, it seems like, been perhaps a little bit reluctant to do so. Um, We also know that baby boomers hold an inordinate percentage of American wealth. Yeah. So what does that look like? What do you think for, or how would Philip Bump think about passing the baton and um, kind of helping buttress um, institutions in American life for those baby boomers?
0: I was in a coffee shop a couple months ago and... I was working, writing, and there were two older uh, ladies sitting next to me and I couldn't help but overhear them. And one of them said, look, they started to talk about politics. And I thought, oh, I don't, I came in here to work. I don't want to overhear somebody's political right. uh, argument. Yeah. But yeah. I, I kind of was glad I could hear it because one of the ladies said, look, all I'm asking for in the next presidential election is that, that, I don't even care who the two candidates are that <laughs> want that at least one of them mm-hmm. won't qualify for being in a senior adult uh, uh, community uh, living center. <laughs> she was a senior adult, yeah, yeah. She, but I mean, here we are, and we've got uh, you know 80 uh, year eighty-year-olds as the front runners right. of the right. of the parties, but you step back and you look at that until just very recently, we had an 81-year-old as Speaker of the House. Mm -hmm. We have an 80-something as a Senate uh, minority leader. I mean, you you go through the whole uh, list. And then especially when you look at churches, there are so few transitions that don't end up being conflagrations.
1: Yeah.
0: And uh, sometimes that's because there are, Real uh, issues, or sometimes it's because you have human psychology at work, and uh, human psychology has all of these factors to it. Especially the "I don't want to feel like I'm irrelevant and like I'm passing off of the yeah. uh, off of the scene." Even if somebody mm-hmm. thinks they're ready for that, when they get to that point, they're really not. Yeah. Bumps point in this book. Is to say that's uniquely the case with the baby boom because uh, all of their lives they've been the biggest uh, group of people out there, so they're the ones who are marketed to, and and uh, they they really do believe this is just life in many yeah. in many cases, and so it becomes maybe even even harder. Yeah. than it would be in other situations.
1: Right. Yeah. What, what might be the call for boomers now to pass the baton and to help mentor the next generation? Do you think?
0: Well, I think in some way, the passing the baton is the wrong metaphor because I think that we have this skewed way of thinking in Western life Mm -hmm. now that wouldn't have been the case in the past, which is to say there comes a moment in which somebody is not, uh, not only should they not be in the same sort of uh, position within the community, they should be in no position within the community. Mm -hmm. And, And so what that tends to do is you end up with some people who are assuming what it means to be valuable is to yeah. be uh, is That's to be moving point. at a fast speed and to be uh, changing. And anybody who's not is irrelevant. And then they're headed for a real crash one day. Yeah, yeah. And also the people who are coming to that point who are thinking, it's not just that I'm moving from one place of con- contributing to the community into another way of con- contributing to the community, but... I'm essentially, I'm the past. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's just not true. Right. And so if, we, if you had churches that, uh, that really did find that biblical sense of with, with, with all of the different stages of the life cycle, mm-hmm. that, which means you have to preach or teach each part of the life cycle differently. Because if you don't, what you end up with is just uh heightening people's sense of somebody else's sins and, and failures. But you have to sort of distinctively say to older people, look, crucify self and realize that um that you are mortal and the church uh, continues on after you and 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 contribute to that. Mm-hmm. You have to say to people who are uh in those uh places kind of in the Prime of their lives. Uh, here's how you include yeah. uh, and honor those who've gone before you, and here's how you prepare to be them. Mm-hmm. And you and you say to the uh, to the younger uh, ones, stop, uh, stop waiting for some rite of passage. In which you go from being yeah. a child consumer to being a grown-up,
1: <laughs> yeah,
0: because yeah. that doesn't happen. Right. And so, <laughs> a, a a lot of times you end up with um you you end up with people who really who if they were to contribute in the ways that they're gifted in their churches, it would be wonderful. Right, but they don't do it because they. They think that there's. Mm-hmm. They think that when I'm ready to do that, somebody right. is going to come and say, "Here's your pen, and you do." I mean, we just all <laughs> tend to.
1: Yeah, right. We all right. tend to do yeah. that. And you know, it comes back to some of the earlier conversations about how we construct stories, how we construct meaning, um, and part of that is a really important way to think about our lives in terms of that life cycle. It's a story, and yeah. there's different roles and ways that we can support one another through it. Well, one book I'm reading, if you want to permit me just a few seconds, it's called um, yeah. The Influencer Industry, um, published uh-huh. by Princeton University Press, um, The Quest for Authenticity in Social Media by Emily Hund. And I'm finding it fascinating because it is this kind of sociological study um, of both the rise of technology and how it's informed us. And then this whole thing quote, known as the influencer. So you can see them, you know, on Twitter, on Instagram, on this sense, right, for for a lot of Gen Zers even as we think about our our generational conversation. The idea is, you know, the ideal job, right, is to become, right, a YouTube sensation or, you know, an Instagram influencer. It's this idea of fame and being unattached Um, But what I found so fascinating in that book is she's talking about, we change not through mass communication, but through people. And so there's this idea in which influencers are leveraging something that's intimate knowledge between people um, and product, you know? And so we have somehow made authenticity profitable um, and Mm. I just, and I find that, really fascinating and horrible. Um, it's almost like a you know a car crash that you can't look away when you're looking at social media because people feel like they're friends right with with yeah. someone that they follow. Um, but that ultimately influencers are being consumed by others. Huh. I found that really fascinating, you know, as we think about social media more generally, the ways in which we consume each other
0: what and by consume consume each other does the book mean uh devour each other or market each other
1: i think both you know both in both. the sense of the the sense in which we can at least you would see in twitter more in that space the sense that yeah you know we easily um are slanderous, right? And that we do not see the image of God and people behind, you know, the words that, that they say on online. Um, but yeah. you know, in in things that are more video based, like Instagram and YouTube, she's talking a lot about the ways in which ultimately people are shifting who they are to mm. become a product so that in that little small niche they can sell skincare well or something. And yeah. you feel like their friend and then they they are making money off of a false idea of friendship, hmm. uh, which I think really contributes to a lot of the loneliness and lack of real connection that we see in our day-to-day lives.
0: I remember, the, and uh, I think it was a biography of Johnny Carson, the, um, mm-hmm. the uh, o- o- old uh, talk show host from the Last right. generation, yep. who uh, was talking to David Letterman, mm-hmm. who was also talk show host at the time, and uh, said, we, "You know, we ought to get together sometime." And David Letterman said, "What are we going to do, Johnny? Interview each other?" <laughs> <laughs> and it was the idea was there really wasn't anything, anything
1: right there, they, yeah. or he yeah. didn't
0: feel like there was anything right. to them other than that right. public right. persona.
1: Right. Right. And, you know, you get that sense in mass forms of communication. And what's fascinating about the whole idea of influencing is that it's become more and more niche and it can be changed in real time, you know, so that you, um, there was an article, I think, in The Atlantic about a woman who I think in her teens or preteens became very famous, Tevi Gavinlinson, I think is her name. And she talked about as she continued in this influencing role for a decade plus At that point, she didn't even know who she was anymore. Like she had begun it as this sort of creativity outlet and then it became simply, she became a brand.
0: Yeah, that can happen in ministry too. It
1: can, it really can. And can
0: happen in family too.
1: Listeners, be sure to sign up for Dr. Moore's newsletter. He always includes what he's reading on there. And you can also... Find that link to sign up in the show notes and send him your island playlist or your book list um, so that you can, again, find a good book to pick up and start great conversations. Thanks so much, Russell. Thank you. The Russell Moore Show is a production of Christianity Today. Executive producers are Eric Petrick, Russell Moore, and Mike Cospert. Hosted by Russell Moore. Produced by Ashley Hales. Associate producers, Abby Perry and Azari Phelps. CT administration provided by Christine Kolb. Social media by Kate Lucky. Director of operations for CT Media is Matt Stevens. Production assistance provided by Core Media. Audio engineer is Kevin Duthu. Coordinator is Beth Grabencourt. Video producer is John Rowland. The theme song for The Russell Moore Show is Dusty Delta Day by Lennon Hutton.
0: Every day, CT testifies to the reality that Jesus is alive, transforming his world and bringing his kingdom to bear. Jesus transforms. CT equips.